and welcome. This is the UC Santa Cruz News Roundup podcast, where we talk about the latest news and research from UC Santa Cruz. However, this episode, we're doing something totally different. We won't have a news roundup, sorry to all our news fans out there, but we will be back with news next time. This show, we interviewed an amazing alumna, Stephanie Fu, when she came to campus for a series of talks and presentations about how to find important stories that tug on heartstrings, build empathy, and ultimately make a real impact. Stephanie, a Stevenson 08 Modern Literature alumna, is a writer and radio producer. She spent several years as a producer for This American Life, where she produced dozens of radio stories and an Emmy-winning video short. Before that, she helped create Snap Judgment. Her work has also aired on shows like 99% Invisible and Reply All. And have you ever listened to any of those? I listened to a bunch of those. I think it's amazing that you look at, you mentioned that she's a class of 2008 Stevenson because she sure accomplished an incredible amount for a journalist just within 10 years. I I mean, you talk about being someone who was self-trained entirely, who then ended up going on This American Life. Such a self-starter who has this very, uh, this boundless curiosity and intelligence and is just engaging with the world all the time. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And um, before the interview, do you want to give a oh, talk yeah, a little bit was, about that? That was fascinating. There was a group uh, of UCSC folks who sat down with her at Merrill, and uh, she gave us great tips about the art of the interview and finding great stories. I just sat there just geeking out, just typing it all out. <laughs> I know. She had a ton of good advice for us um, for future podcasts. One thing she said was funny. She goes, don't get mad, get tape. That's right. Don't get mad, get tape. <laughs> the whole idea being that it, that level of personal involvement, even if you're mad about it, I mean, that level of personal involvement is really key. And she just it really follows things that, that pique her interest, which will take her to some unusual places. She did a story about a guy in Texas who was apparently held hostage in his own house. <laughs> She also talked a lot about the importance of having good talkers. You could have an interesting story, but for something like a podcast, you need someone who can talk very well, who's colorful and engaging and direct, because that really makes a huge difference for the listener and just pulls you right in. I know. So that was great stuff. Do you think you think you're you're a good talker? You know, I, th- I think I'm an okay talker. <laughs> she did talk about uh, the difference between people who are so halting when you interview them that you don't get anything, and people who are so practiced, like maybe like a rock star yeah. or, or like a someone, PR person, PR person yeah. who is just such a slick person. Yeah, I don't yeah. think of myself as particularly slick. Maybe not mm. slick enough, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, so she never stops looking for stories, which yeah, was a really interesting um, part of her presentation. Yeah, was... And um, it was just a great conversation uh, with Stephanie Fu. A couple other things I'd like to mention about her. She is an advocate for diversity in media. She wrote a viral piece for Transom about increasing racial and economic diversity in workplaces and created an audio hackathon to diversify the way people can access and share audio. She then led the development of Shortcut, a revolutionary app for sharing podcast audio, and she was a Toe and Night Fellow. And now she's left American Life. She is currently writing an investigative memoir on complex PTSD. And she's got a big book contract for that. It's it's coming out. I'm excited about that. I know. I am too. So without further ado, let's get to the interview, which we did at KZSC on February 11th. I'm Gwen Jardinet, and I'm an editor for UC Santa Cruz News. I'm Dan White. I'm a writer for UC Santa Cruz News. All right, and here we go. 
Stephanie, welcome back to campus. How? Uh, what's it like to be back here at UC Santa Cruz? It's always good to be back. I really, I really loved. Um, I think it's just such a beautiful campus. <laughs> yes. Obviously, yes. So, love the smell of the redwoods. Ah, uh, I know. It is known for that. Do you get back often, or not? too much or I don't make it back to campus that often I come to Santa Cruz I go up hiking in the in the mountains a lot well when I when I do make it back to the west yeah yeah. (laughs) um so you immigrated to the U.S. from Malaysia when you were three Mm -hmm. where did you and your parents settle when you arrived here and where did you grow up we settled in San Jose so okay very easy yeah. Very close commute <laughs> to college. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so you, 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 you had just come straight to San Jose and then you grew up in San Jose. You didn't move anywhere else. Yep. Okay. And what, what uh, brought you out to UC Santa Cruz to begin with? I mean, to be honest with you, it's the only UC I got into, but yeah. <laughs> uh, I was happy once I arrived, certainly. I was at Stevenson. And I had a. I was really lucky to have a room that basically overlooked the, the, the athletic field and the ocean. So it was beautiful. Oh, nice. Did do you know much about UC Santa Cruz before you got here? No, I just applied to all of the UCs. And okay. One of them took <laughs> me. So thanks, guys. Yeah, no problem. Uh, I I personally <laughs> got you in here. <laughs> I I remember um, I appealed to Davis. And oh, they rejected okay. my appeal. Uh, um, all right. And so I was super bummed about that. And now I kind of want to go up to them and be like, ha, see, <laughs> turned out okay. Exactly. Um, do you remember, do you have any memorable professors or experiences you want to talk about? Um, certainly there was a lot of like going out into the knoll and uh, finding... Banana slugs, lots of late night walks to food and lots of climbing hills. Um, I really loved going, taking my oceans classes and going on field trips to the aquariums. And um, I love the, the, I forget the name of it, the sort of more local aquarium in Santa Cruz. Um, the Seymour Center? The Seymour Center, yeah. And then lots of... Um, field trips to the tide pools, and um, I kind of got indoctrinated fully into hippie culture while I was here. Uh, yeah, Started yeah. drinking the kombucha, <laughs> dumpster diving at the bread place, uh, did you composting. Ever, did you ever lick a banana slug? Of course. <laughs> I don't know if I licked it. I kissed it. What was that like? Did your lip go numb? I don't remember. I think it was fine. It was bad tasting? No. Oh. I mean, I like them. I'd do it again. Um, Rite of passage. Yeah. And I had a a lot of, um, I just took a lot of literature classes and Mm -hmm. I wound up taking a lot of Jewish literature classes and Polynesian classes, weirdly. Okay. I don't know why, but yeah, it's fun. Definitely. Do you think that there's some sort of takeaway that you retained from the literature classes that maybe goes into the radio broadcast in any sense? Um, sense I, of story and <laughs> plot and narrative. And I mean, I think that being a good writer translates to, to, to audio. So certainly it's good to practice writing. And um, um, 
it went into my print and my audio career, I guess. I don't know that, like, writing papers on, um, you know, uh, the comparison between two Jewish lit books was something that, like, <laughs> I really used that much. But, um, I mean, certainly there's a lot of um, sociology along with mm. my lit classes in terms of learning how the world works and in terms of learning about class uh, divides and struggle and um, politics in America and Europe and beyond that became an important foundation when, when you're doing journalism, um, just in understanding the world and understanding what is a story and what understanding and understanding what is an offensive <laughs> story <laughs> um, that you might not want to run. Uh, that's all. Yeah. Yeah. I think it does. And are you still in touch with any UC Santa Cruz friends that you met here? Yeah, I have lots of... UCSC friends, or, um, yeah, one of them is coming to hang out tonight, and uh, me and him taught, oh, me and him taught the Stevenson Core class together. Oh, oh. very cool. Yeah. But does he still drink kombucha? <laughs> uh, I'm sure he does. <laughs> he actually is back here now. He's a, he's a um, grad student here now. Um, nice. what, what was the core course that you taught? What was the topic? Uh, self and society. Self, oh, that's right. Self mm-hmm. and society. It's kind of interesting because I know that um, I know that Santa Cruz has gotten a lot more diverse since I came here. So that's really great because at the time I remember teaching the self and society class, and I was it was me. My co teacher was white, and every single student was white, and mm. I was supposed to teach them about racism. Mm-hmm. And they didn't believe that it existed. And I had to be like, well, in my experience. <laughs> um, wow. So that was, uh, it's difficult when to, to, dis- to be able to go into experiences like that when you don't have a diverse classroom, which is, which is why I hope that, you know, um, the UC system continues to um, have a diverse uh, student population. I think it, everyone benefits. So if you're starting with a baseline of people in total denial about that existing, how did you get through to them? I told them, I literally just had to tell them about my own stories mm. and, and um, just say, you know, this happened to me yesterday. Mm. <laughs> right. And um, it kind of really opened their eyes and also, you know, forced them to read Sorwana de la Cruz and Malcolm X and all of that. But it was, uh, I don't know if I handled it super well either as a young Professor, I was like, what, 19? 19 years old. <laughs> so, <laughs> that would be challenging for anybody. Yeah. How did you get started um, teaching like that? How did you become the, um, what was it called? The core course instructor. instructor. Yeah. Um, I mean, with Stevenson, it was kind of cool. They just had a program there that um, students who did really well in core and who really wanted to teach core again could elect to do it if they wanted to. Oh, okay. And so they sent out this email, I think, to all of us saying, hey, if you're interested, apply. And I loved my core course so much. I thought it was really life-changing and mm. really, um, it just gave me a great foundation to rest the rest of college and life on. Um, so I think it was probably one of the best classes that I took mm. the whole time I was here. And um, so I was happy to 
take a stab at teaching it myself. Yeah. I don't know how well I did. Probably not that well. But <laughs> it's, an, it's a formative experience. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like it. Um, so you went on. <clears throat> you graduated. What did you do after you graduated? So, um, yeah, I really wanted to be a uh, print journalist, a yeah. magazine writer. Hunter S. Thompson yes. style magazine writer. <laughs> and then I graduated in 2008. Um, and I immediately um, tried to apply to all these magazines and newspapers that were shutting down. Yeah. Um, I got an internship at the San Francisco branch of The Onion, and that shut down uh, a few months into me joining. Oh, no. Did you get to write anything for The Onion? No, I was just doing... They were trying to pivot to some like um tech thing anyway and it didn't work out for them so I was like kind of helping out with that um and so I started teaching journalism to middle schoolers um uh and I started sort of publishing a paper by middle schoolers with this like camp um and then at the same time, I was listening to eight hours of This American Life a Day. I had just <laughs> discovered it. I was going through the entire catalog. It was fascinating. And I, at some point, I was like, well, I should just do this because this is taking up my whole life anyway. And this is apparently a form of uh, journalism and of media that is so moving and genuine and inspires change. And so... I started my own podcast called Get Me on This American Life. Uh, very, very budget. Very, very bad. <laughs> I did that for about six months, uh, re- releasing an episode every two weeks or so. And did you have guests on the show? No, I went out and I reported. Okay. I went out and I reported <laughs> stories. Um, and uh, I... I sent it to Jesse Thorne, a UCSC alum. Yep. He sent it to Roman Mars, who was a KALW, um, uh, I think, editor at the time. He was also um, the new executive producer at a new show called Snap Judgment out of Oakland. They hired me as an intern. Um, I came on my first day with 25 pitches. And uh, I, in six months, I was producing 75% of the show. And so they had to hire me. Um, and then four years later, uh, this American life poached me and I spent five years there. Nice. So that's my, wow. my career path. So your podcast came true. <laughs> your get me on this American life podcast. Yeah. Happened. It just took a few years from yeah. getting me on there. And then I played it for Ira at one point. Oh my God. <laughs> and for Ira Glass. It was humiliating. Oh. And he played me in return his first okay. radio story. Also humiliating. So yeah. that made me feel better. Okay. But did he think he was humiliating or was yes, he like, oh, we were, this is so cute? We were both just cringing and <laughs> screaming oh the entire time. Just like, why? <laughs> why? And was his as humiliating as yours? No, or? mine was definitely worse. <laughs> <laughs> but um, he certainly didn't know how to do a radio read back then. His voice Aww. was really weird. I'm wondering what it was like, because you'd mentioned before that you're entirely self-trained, you know, um, when you were starting out. So what was it like to go from someone who just taught herself how to do this and went for it to someone working within the culture of this American life? Uh, it was a culture shock. Yeah. It was hard. Um, you know, they were, I remember inviting the whole staff out to karaoke 
briefly after I first got to This American Life, and they were like, wow, Stephanie, you're so wild, and you're so, like, <laughs> young and fresh. And I was like, whoa, you guys are really New York media, aren't you? <laughs> like, do you remember how to have fun? Um, but, yeah, it was definitely, I mean, it was going from this very New York, I mean, Oakland startup, community-oriented, like, I would go to you know, Tourette's Without Regrets and things like that and find stories there to going to New York City and needing to have the best stories in the uh, in America, in the world, you know? And and that was really intimidating. I was 26 at the time. It was a big challenge. Um, but it was certainly a great learning experience. Um, and I got to bring some of my Californian vibes there. And uh, <laughs> I... I now I'm like a strange mishmash of uh, self-care and uh, intensely um, uh, meticulous New York editing skills. So hopefully it evens out <laughs> <laughs> to a normal person. So, <laughs> yeah. It was, I, yeah. What was the process like of trying to, of vying to get your piece on the air of, of, of of people competing and sort of in pitching, how did that whole process work? Uh, we had a pitch, two stories every. Well, when I first started, we it was two stories a week, and then it was two stories every other week. Um, and um, certainly, my pitches were not taken as often because uh, at Snap Judgment, you know, I had a story on at least one story on every week, if not three. Um, so I went from that to doing, you know, maybe six stories a year. Mm. Um, I mean, I was doing other stuff in the middle of that. I was editing, I was producing shows. But in terms of like my voice narrating a story on air, maybe six or eight a year. Um, and so, and that was also probably, you know, one out of whatever, six pitches for me or something like that. Uh, so... Um, it was a, again, uh, a culture change that was really hard at first. But when I got adjusted to the quality of stories that I was creating, that was great. And I, I'm really lucky, actually. I'm, I am a really good pitcher. And so I didn't have a hard time getting stories on air. Um, and I was really satisfied with the way they came out. And I really was satisfied with the impact that they had. So... Um, Overall, it was a really rewarding experience. Yeah, I've I've just always loved your This American Life stories. Oh, thank yeah, you. You're welcome. Appreciate <laughs> it. Um, we were just at a great presentation you just gave about finding and pitching stories. Um, but for the benefit of our listeners, how do you come up with your story ideas and where do you find them? Um, basically, it's, it's a sort of culture of curiosity that you have to adopt. It's a mindset where you think that stories are everywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I, I move through life searching for them. And maybe that means just striking up conversations with random people at every party that I meet, trying to be like, who are you? What is your story? You know, um, it might be noticing strange things like weird gargoyles or plaques in the city or, you know, being like, why is this toothbrush designed this way? Um, to, um, 
reading in a really different way, sort of like reading for pleasure, but also having an eye out for uh, strange stories and everything that I'm consuming. Um, And really, I think the most important thing is paying attention to what makes you angry or sad or happy and really uh, paying attention to where your emotions and your passions lie because I do stories about things that I really care about. Um, I always say, don't get mad, get tape. Um, (laughs) So, you know, um, I did stories about dating while Asian when I was on Tinder (laughs) and I did stories about um, the military when I started dating my husband who's in the military and then... um, It's just been a wild ride (laughs) of of getting to investigate everything that I feel passionate about. Do you think you were, you're just a a curious, creative person and you were like that even before you went down this, the road of becoming a podcaster and a journalist or Mm. did did those things um, kind of bring that out in you? I think I kind of already was, but I think, you know, I started my own zine in high school. Mm. And I think that's when it kind of started, where I was like, what could I cover? And I think that um, that aspect of me, that skill in me has really flourished because of this. And I think it was one of the things that made me a better person, I think, because I'm always open to hearing what different perspectives are. Um, and not writing people off because I might consider what story they may have to tell. Um, and so I think it made me mature a lot quicker and in ways that were, um, that made me a more well-rounded person. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm wondering, um, during a presentation before, you were talking about the difference between a great interview subject and someone who's kind of uninspiring or downright bad interview subject. And I was wondering if you could articulate that again, because I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, I think that um, it, what it, the terminology that we use is a good talker um, and a... A sort of mediocre interview subject may uh, not be able to tell their own story in a um, self-aware way or in a way that um, means that they have sort of analyzed what's happened to them, a self-analytical way. They might be sort of hesitant or really guarded in really going there. They might be sort of monotone um, or dissociated from their own story. I think a really great interview subject is somebody who is really passionate about their story or is excited or um, is just willing to go there to be emotional, to go to like tough places with you, to be able to philosophize about what their story might be and is self-aware. Also, doesn't hurt if they're really funny, if they have an <laughs> awesome voice or accent, um, if they're just charming and likable and a really excellent conversationalist. Um And so, you know, I really want my listeners to be personally invested in each person's story, to like the subject that I have so that they have as much empathy as possible. So they're able to understand and be moved to action, 
hopefully, about whatever subject that we are trying to elaborate on, if not having like new levels of empathy. And I don't think you can do that with somebody who's kind of unlikable. I'm wondering if you give us an example of a great talker from your recent experience. Um, recent, maybe not. Oh, it doesn't have to be that recent. <laughs> Just from the annals General of, your, of your... I think, uh, you know, one of my favorite talkers was this guy, Joe Rowe, who um, I was really afraid of at first because he... Uh, told me that he wouldn't do an interview with me unless I came to his house. And then he told me that, like, I had to identify myself clearly because, you know, he shoots people who trespass. And there's all these signs that were like, oh trespassers shot on property. And then I got in and he made me all these blueberry muffins, gluten-free blueberry muffins, where I think low fat. And then he was just the sweetest guy. And he had this crazy <laughs> Texan accent and his drawl. And he had all these wonderful sayings and he was able to talk about like in a sort of in, in, in this really adventurous way about him being held hostage in his home by Texas secessionists. And he showed me all the bullet holes around his house. He was just like this like vivid storyteller. Um, and um, yeah, I just and then he let me shoot his gun. <laughs> It was called the Judge, the shotgun pistol. What Whoa. was that like to shoot that? Loud. <laughs> I, I was very stupid and kept my he my kit headphones on and then uh. shot it. Oh, <laughs> oh God! Stupid. But it was fun. I got I got the target first try. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I'm actually a pretty good shot. <laughs> and so, can, can you tell talent. just? Just right from the get-go, when you're on the phone with someone, if they're going to be a great talker or not? Um, sometimes. Sometimes it's immediate. Sometimes I know in 10 minutes. And sometimes I have to spend an hour sort of figuring out what they think about their story. If they have an interesting takeaway from what happened to them or what they've gone through. Um, and if there's a cool, surprising angle to take the story along. Yeah. It's interesting what you were saying about... Uh, people who may be so nervous and so on edge about the interview that it goes poorly. But there's also a flip side because you could also have people who are too slick, who have either been interviewed too many times before or they're PR people who the, the interview just doesn't have any traction for that reason. Right. I mean, if the, the idea is to sound natural, right? And if yeah. you sound like you're being overly performative, you're not going to really sound natural. Yeah. And, and human. And human. And, um, well, one of your This American Life broadcasts that was very striking, the favorite, that required you to uncover some complicated and painful truths about your, your family. I was just hoping you can talk a little bit about the origins of where that podcast came from and where the, that journey took you and what you found out. Um, well, I, you know, I interviewed my grandma or my great aunt years ago. Because I was just getting an oral history from her because, you know, she's old and uh, she let loose this really surprising thing as we were talking that, um, you know, I'd always thought I'd been the favorite growing up. And she was like, you weren't, 
It wasn't that anybody loved you more. It's just that we knew that you were being abused by your mother. So we were all trying to ease your like life experience, mm-hmm. um, which was shocking to me. And at the time, I wanted to do a story on it, and I sort of pitched it to um, Snap Judgment, and I was sobbing like mm-hmm. while I was doing the pitch. I mean, it had just happened, you know? And so I think Glenn made a good call, which was, he was like, I don't think you're ready to do this story because I don't think you've processed it. And I don't think you know what the story means for you yet. Um, which I was kind of like, you're stupid at the time. But um, <laughs> like with with space, I understood what he was talking about. And then, you know, flash forward a couple of years to This American Life, and it just sort of fit in some perfect theme. And I remember being at the meeting and we were going through some theme where it was like, you think it's one way and then you find out it's another thing or whatever. And I thought, eh. and I raised my hand and I was like, what about this idea, guys? Like this happened to me. And they were like, absolutely, mm-hmm. yes. Um, and so I, I worked on it. I wrote out the script and yeah. And I'm just wondering what the experience was like for you to then, you know, you have this completed story the experience of knowing that you'd be sharing your story with thousands of people out there listening to you on NPR? Uh, I think it was nerve-wracking. Millions, actually. Millions. Mm. Yeah. Um, many millions. Many millions, yes. yes. Um, uh, but I think the thing that made it feel okay is just having editors, really great editors that I could trust, and I was really forthright with them. I was like, here are the ways that I'm afraid of being perceived so listen to this story with these ears on to make sure that, you know, I don't sound like I'm trying to be pitiful, sad sack or whatever it is. And um, I was just like, please protect me, <laughs> you know, in whatever ways. And being able to really lean on them. I mean, that's what a good editor should be. That's what they're for. And so... Having those ongoing conversations was uh, critical, was really Mm -hmm. important. Did you get much feedback or response from that segment? I got some of the most feedback I've ever gotten for Mm -hmm. any story on that segment. I got tons and tons of people who had um, endured child abuse who were saying like, oh my goodness, this this story sounds like my story. or just being like, thank you for putting out in the open that this happens. And I also just got tons of um, feedback from Asians and Malaysians in particular, because I speak Manglish in it, which is like my pidgin English. And I'm talking to my grandma who also, you know, speaks pidgin English and, uh, or spoke pidgin English. And, um, Everybody was just like, we have not heard our own voices on the air ever. Yeah. Yeah. And so being able to give that to this population was really important Mm -hmm. for me. That must have been really satisfying to get that kind of response. Yeah. And I I was glad I didn't get any negative response, (laughs) which I was really scared about. Yeah. Yeah. Your stories are far ranging in terms of subject matter, but some common themes seem to emerge, such as, for instance, questions surrounding identity. What does that topic mean to you? You know, I don't think that I've ever intentionally Mm -hmm. said, like, I want to do stories about identity. 
I do think that when you're a person of color or if you belong to any sort of minority group, there is an added pressure for you to represent in some way. And certainly, um, I don't mind that pressure so much as well because I do find it an opportunity to put out stories that don't already exist in the air. Um, and so in terms of stories of doing stories about people who are Asian American or finding those stories, those always were really satisfying to me because I was like, I think it's some of those comments that I just heard, mentioned in terms of people saying, wow, I haven't heard that voice before that made me think, mm. wow, I guess it's my responsibility to make sure that these voices um, make it on more. Because if it can be such a moving experience for people, if it can really inspire them to say, like, this is something that I can do, I can tell my own story, then it becomes not just a public service, it becomes sort of a necessity. And so I think that was a big mission of Snap Judgment, too, was putting stories on air from populations that don't often get heard. And so just having that be a priority in a lot of what we did was really important. And and then also, like, I just have to say, some of it was intentional and some of it really wasn't because when you hire diverse mm. people on a staff, they automatically are in communities and spaces where they're seeing stories like this. Right. Um, and so it's not even that they're really thinking about identity. That's just, like, what <laughs> comes up in their yeah. lives. Yeah. For, for me, it was anyway, and so I think that's why it's really important to have diverse newsrooms and diverse academic settings um, so that these voices can be shared. Mm -hmm. And you've expressed your concerns before about lack of diversity in public media, and I was hoping you can tell us about that and your thoughts on how to address the issue, how to change that going forward, and if you feel like there's, if it looks like, if you're hopeful that there will be more diversity I mean, I think it's getting better. I think it's not getting better at a, at a pace that is totally satisfying. I mean, I think, that, you know, if you look at certain large media podcasting companies and you look at the, um, you just look at the staff, you, you might be like, hmm. <laughs> and I think it's a hiring thing. I think it's a, it's hiring people of color and not ghettoizing those people of color by forcing them to only report on black issues. Let's say you hire somebody who's black and you are like, you're our token black person <laughs> and you have to do all the black stuff. Um, can be really problematic. And then hiring people who are editors who are also, because I think it's really hard to be like the only black person when you don't have much power, when you're not empowered. And you don't see that represented, represented at different levels of... Um, of, of management above you and leadership. And so I think there needs to be an outreach, I think making a lot of more diverse content so that they're, I mean, like, you know, I have a lot of friends who, are, when I started working in public radio, they were like, why? You're like the whitest person we know. And <laughs> you do like, you do like the news and traffic, right? And I'm like, well, no, but they would never listen to me. They don't have any idea who I wear glasses because they're like middle to low income, like people of color, which that, that's not the demographic that NPR or public radio was targeting for a long time. 
So you need to be making content for them to compel them to actually join up. You have to like actively um, headhunt for them, mm-hmm. hire them, hire them at all stages, not just um, as you know interns. Um, so, though certainly that's a great way to get started. Pay your interns so that it's accessible for them to join media um, so they can survive. Otherwise, there's just like this terrible barrier to entry, yeah. which is something that I think is very... Um, I mean, there's clear parallels here on campus as well mm-hmm. um, in terms of these spaces remain elite and white if you don't make it accessible for people who have less money and resources to be able to be here. Um, So that's why I try and advocate for that as much. I've seen a lot of hiring happen recently. um, And I have the mixed feeling of people saying like, coming to me and saying like, we hired a person of color and it's because of you. And I'm kind (laughs) of like, that's cool. You should have thought about that before, <laughs> before I said it, because right, it's yeah. like, it's like at that point, I'm like, it's 2018, dudes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. but um, I hope that it gets better. I think the wealth of new creators in the podcast realm makes this a more relevant field, and I think that that is making it better. Have you also heard from young uh, beginning? podcasters who are people of color who have mentioned that you've inspired them in their paths? Yeah, mm-hmm. that's nice. Yeah. It's yeah. weird. Yeah. It's <laughs> nice. It makes me feel really old. People will come to me and they'll be like, I've been listening to your stuff since high school. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, oh no. I'm old now. Oh and I'm, I'm not even that old. You are not that old. <laughs> not that old at all. Uh, so you left This American Life about a year ago, I think? Something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Almost um, exactly. Okay. Now you're working on a book mm-hmm. about how to heal from complex PTSD. Mm-hmm. Can you explain uh, what complex PTSD is mm-hmm. and what made you want to write about the topic? So you can get regular, I don't, don't want to say regular, but <laughs> like classic PTSD uh, from a single traumatic event. So if you, um, let's say um, you get in a car accident. You could get in a, you could t- get PTSD from that experience. Uh, complex PTSD occurs when the trauma happens over and over and over again over the course of many years. So if you are in like 15 car accidents over the course of like three years, you know, then you're at risk for something like complex PTSD. Um, it's mm, has different treatments and it's more. Uh, difficult to treat than regular PTSD, especially when it occurs in childhood. And that's a big chunk of complex PTSD cases Mm -hmm. are essentially child abuse cases um, or being brought up in like war-torn countries, let's say. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, it's not in the DSM. Um, It's like acknowledged by the VA. Is that because it's it's newly found or why wouldn't it be? It's kind of newer and like People have tried lobbying to get into the DSM several times, and each time they're like, well, you know, this isn't really 
different, that different from PTSD, or they'll say, um, you know, I, I mean, apparently one person was like, well, you get rid of the whole DSM if you mm. put this in here. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> because I think complex PTSD is really often misdiagnosed as um, depression or anxiety or mm. BPD or bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's really a shame. I think it, it is widely acknowledged with, um, again, the VA and, and therapists who work with um, refugee populations, populations who have survived torture, um, a lot of uh, uh, therapists who are treating low-income communities, kids who are who have undergone a ton of trauma around poverty, or their um, parents being, you know, deported or being involved in violence. Anyway, mm-hmm. all of that to say. Uh, we need to understand that complex PTSD isn't just for survivors of the Khmer Rouge. It's also Mm -hmm. happening in homes all across America Mm -hmm. with kids who are dealing with um, trauma, uh, with dealing with poverty, dealing with racism, dealing with abuse like I was and neglect. Um, And it's happening more and more. And like we're not being, we can't treat them unless we acknowledge that this is real. So anyway, mm-hmm. this book is about like the science and the psychology um, of how to heal from complex PTSD as seen through the lens of my own experience. Great. And you just got a book deal? Did I? Yeah, I got a big one that? with Random House. Nice. Congratulations. Valentine. Wow. Very exciting. <laughs> yeah. So when will the book come out or do you have a date or no? Um, tentatively spring 2022. Okay. Mm-hmm. We will have to be looking for that. Yeah. <laughs> That's got to be hard work. It's intimidating, um, but I think a lot of the hard work is done. Okay. Which is the healing. Mm. Um, I mean, I'm not done healing, but the hardest part of that, and a lot of the like hard writing came out of that. Um, and now I'm kind of like piecing the story together. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. And now I'm a little bit like I've been engaging with the material for two years now, so I'm a little bit bored with my own trauma, <laughs> which is nice. It's, it's a good place to be. Right. Do you think you'll go back to broadcast after the book, or? I mean, I, sure. I think I'm. We're. I'm planning on releasing a companion podcast along with it because okay. I um, recorded all of my sessions of like this really interesting new form of therapy with my therapist, um, and so hopefully we'll we'll do something cool with that. And I'm also continuing to edit for um, Bodies and for Nancy and for other little gig shows here and there. So that's cool. Great. Yeah. And I think you recently got married. I did. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Congratulations. Thanks. Fingers minute. crossed. A whole new chapter of life. Well, thank you. Um, that was wonderful to, to talk with you. And thank you for coming to campus and visiting us. And I love visiting. Having have this me wonderful... He- have me here more. Okay. We love it. Okay. <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs> um, and thank you for the wonderful events that you're giving today and being with us. So.